Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen continues her eight-part series exploring the roots and history of attachment theory with the conclusion of her two-part discussion with Dr. Howard Steele on John Bowlby's work in child development and attachment theory. Hello, everyone. It is great to have you here for the Attachment Theory in Action podcast, our special series on the history of attachment theory. This is Karen Buckwalter joining you from Chadak as your host. And today we are going to be speaking with Dr. Howard Steele about the life and work of John Bowlby. Of course, no podcast series of (laughs) the history of attachment theory would be complete if you didn't have somebody speaking about John Bowlby. So as I thought about this and who might be able to speak with him, I immediately thought of doctors Howard and Miriam Steele um, because they actually knew him personally, worked down the office from him. Yep, you you heard me right. Uh, Worked down the office from him at London, 1986 to 1990. And so just a little bit about Howard Steele, uh, in addition to him talking to us about his relationship today with John Bowlby, he is a professor of psychology, as well as the director of graduate studies at the New School for Social Research. And he also co-directs the Center for Attachment Research with his wife, Dr. Miriam Steele, which is also part of the New School in New York City. He has a focus on attachment theory and research, intergenerational patterns of attachment, mourning in response to trauma and loss, and attachment-based interventions to prevent child maltreatment and promote secure organized attachment. He's also the editor of Attachment and Human Development and has been the president of the Society for Emotion and Attachment Studies. I've personally learned so much from the Steels and their amazing research and contributions clinically as well to the field of attachment studies. And so it is an honor to have uh, Dr. Howard Steele here. Here again on the podcast. So he will be coming right up. Hello, Dr. Steele. It's so great to continue this conversation with you. Thank you. You're welcome. Good to be back with you. Yes. So one of the things that really strikes me as we continue here talking about the work and life of John Bowlby is how science has confirmed so much of what he was saying. And I I think of this, you know, uh, the different things in his 1956 lecture um, that you have um, summarized in, in a paper that you sent me. And one thing that I was thinking about, you know, that's so popular right now is regulation and co regulation and all of those ideas and he was talking about emotional regulation in 1956. 
is quite remarkable. Um, that 56 um, paper that uh, you kindly uh, referenced um, was a lecture that he gave to the British Psychoanalytic Society on the 100th anniversary of Sigmund Freud's birth. And in it, you can see the way in which he is foreshadowing yes. the direction he will take with the articulation of attachment theory through the late 50s and 1960s and the 1970s. Uh, and indeed, as you point out, he's keenly aware of the role that parents have in helping children regulate their emotions and arrive, get this, and arrive at a healthy sense of anxiety, shame, and guilt. Mm. So Bowlby is saying that all children will acquire, the ex will experience anxiety, shame, and guilt. And the goal is to have them experience those things in a healthy way. Briefly in that 56 paper, one of the things he points out is that parents help their children to acknowledge and regulate their emotions when parents acknowledge and regulate their own emotions. For example, we should be telling our children now, this virus makes me very scared. I'm worried. I'm worried for grandma. I'm worried for grandpa. But you know what? They're giving out the vaccination to adults, soon they'll have it for children, and we're gonna be okay, I'm gonna keep you safe. Yes. You know, and hopefully people believe that our government is doing what they can to help people feel safe and keep people safe. So if we show a sense of trust in our local state and federal government, that sense of trust will be also experienced by our children. Um, Bowlby says in the 56 paper that when we, we, we will, as parents, get angry at times. The crucial thing is whether we recover quickly mm. and a, perhaps apologize. I didn't mean to get so upset. Yeah. I love you. I'm not angry at you. I'm angry at the, 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 the behavior that you, you showed because I'm a little disappointed and surprised that you're still doing that thing. I've asked you not to do it. I'm sorry that I got angry. And in showing that behavior, we help children acknowledge that anger is legitimate, particularly when our goals are blocked. It's a natural evolutionary hardwired reaction. The question is whether we can recover quickly. And if parents show they can recover, children will learn to recover from their negative emotions. Yes. I'll just add one other thing in that longitudinal work that I talked about last time we spoke, the pregnant women and the attachment and the children, yes. the way in which the child's attachment to mother is formed by the interactions with mother, a child's attachment to father is formed by the attachments the child had, the interactions the child has with father. We follow those children up. At 12 months, 18 months, five years, six years, 11, 16, 17 years. And at six years of age, we gave a measure of kind of emotion recognition. 
And the children who had been securely attached to mother at 12 months, they were better able to label emotion faces accurately than children who had been insecurely attached. So the problem for the insecurely attached child is that they, they haven't been helped quite enough. Their parents love them. Yes. The parents have lacked certain skills that can be acquired, maybe through listening to this podcast and yes. practicing skills through the work that you and others do. Uh, I, so, um, yes, I mean, emotion regulation, uh, acknowledgement of emotions, regulating emotions. Bowlby knew that was important in 1956, and he would carry on with that, that theme in his writings uh, in the years that, that followed. Yes. You, you are also, um, you know, obviously talking about this throughout the conversation here, but um, one of the other things was this idea that the roots of children's mental health difficulties lie in the parent's own unresolved childhood experiences. And I think that for some people that maybe a provocative statement or feel like blaming, you know, or shaming or something like that. So I, I want you to talk about what that really means. And I also want to just add one of the things that I find so interesting and hopeful is he was such an ally for parents and new parents. So he absolutely wasn't wanting to blame or shame or anything if, if you continue to understand more of what he was talking about. Um, so I just would like you to just share about that whole idea. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I think I would like to quote um, another member of Bowlby's circle in the 1950s, a British psychiatrist who, as far as I know, is still alive. He would be in his late 90s now, close to 100 years of age, Colin Murray Parks. Colin Murray Parks, a psychiatrist uh, who worked closely with Bowlby. And Colin Murray Parks specialized in the study of loss and published a book in the early 70s on, on grief talking about the difficulties that people have when a loved one dies. And he talked about chronic grief or delayed grief as examples of unresolved loss, if you like. Chronic grief where someone still grieves, and it's understandable. I think cross-culturally, we assume there's a period of nine months to a year when somebody might well be absorbed in awful feelings of sadness and grief regarding a lost loved one. But typically after nine months across the world, people recover. They tend to focus on the living loved ones while honoring the memory of dead loved ones. Colin Murray Parks, at the, when he retired from the National Health Service in the UK, I had the opportunity of interviewing him. Yes in front of an audience. And he told that audience of mental health professionals, if he was starting out again, he would throw out the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the International Classification of Diseases. He would get rid of all that and he would train mental health professionals in an understanding of the disruptive effects of loss and trauma. And if we focus 
on the disruptive effects of loss and trauma, help people to recover, resolve those experiences, then their mental health will improve. Their physical health will improve. Colin Murray Parks knew that. John Bowlby knew that. 50 years of research on Bowlby's ideas has confirmed that. Hmm. And so if that doesn't happen, how is that intergenerationally transmitted to one's children? <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fairly um, big, but also possible to answer. Good. <laughs> um, when, a, when a parent, let's think of a parent who is understandably still grieving about a recent loss or about haunting memories concerning experiences that they had as children of physical, yeah. sexual, emotional abuse, that's going to be preoccupying. It's going to lead to a certain kind of hypervigilance, mm -hmm. a certain sensitivity to rejection. Mm -hmm. And children will notice this. And children will be frightened by this. It might be that a parent who has experienced abuse, we know that sometimes there are intergenerational patterns and we behave toward our children much, much in the way that we experienced as children. And if we were badly treated, we might think that's normal. And we might think that the child has to respect us. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to be harsh with my child. They have to fear me. They don't have to. They don't have to fear you. If they fear you, they're going to implicitly respect violence. Do we want our children to respect violence? No. Mm -hmm. We want them to be wary of violence, to avoid being violent to themselves or others. To know that violence is born of anger, that is not acknowledged and not discussed, not not contextualized. Mm -hmm. So children learn from their parents. And if their parents are still grieving some past loss or trauma, that's going to be overwhelming and frightening for the child. And they will be very apprehensive about burdening the parent with their own worries. My God, my mother, father has their own stuff going on. So uh, we ought to, as parents, sort out our stuff. Yes. Deal with our unfinished business and our children will be better off for it. Yes. So um, as I'm also thinking about Bowlby's life and his ideas, um, some people might say, uh, this is not a cross-cultural idea, you know, and, you know, I argue against that sometimes, um, but I would like to hear your thoughts on the cross-cultural application of, of his work and ideas or sure. lack of, whatever. Well, it's an excellent question. 
And indeed, some people have said um, uh, John Bowlby from his British uh, upper middle class upbringing, um, that he was uh, not not familiar necessarily with patterns of caregiving in conditions of poverty, Mm -hmm. uh, conditions of um, broad extended families caring for children. Mm-hmm. where the child's attachment is not to mother or father alone, but to aunt, uncle, grandparents, lots of people providing care. Uh, we would now say in um, 2021 that the crucial consideration for children anywhere in the world is that they receive sensitive and responsive care from one or more people. And if we focus on whether the child has available sensitive and responsive care, sensitive to the feelings of the child, responsive to distress, promptly responsive to distress, then children fare well. Whether we're talking about a child in sub-Saharan Africa or China. I'm a co-author on a paper showing that patterns of attachment in middle-class Chinese families look like middle-class German, British, American families. Mm-hmm. Attachment is a universal construct. Applying has relevance, fundamental biological and psychological relevance to the human animal and lots of other animals as well. So, uh, the ex- whether the child atta- develops a secure attachment is related to the care that they receive. And around the world, 55% of children develop secure attachments. And the quickest definition, best definition of that is that a securely attached child, when they're distressed, they have only one question in mind. Where is mother? Where's father? Where's the caregiver? And on reunion with that caregiver, they settle. They, they're, they're happy and they get back to play. The insecurely attached child, the avoidantly or resistantly attached or disorganized attached child, when they're distressed, they've got at least two questions in mind. Where's the caregiver? And what's their state of mind? Are they going to be there for me? Should I show them how upset and worried I am? That's that's a extra consideration. Yes, at a, very, that, at a very young age, they're yeah. beginning to have to wonder this. And we know that by one year of age, there are children who show by their behavior that they have two or more questions in mind. They have they show apprehension on reunion. They don't approach the parent, even though they were distressed on separation. Perhaps they keep away, move away, the avoidant response. Maybe they, they lean in in the hopes of being comforted, but they cry in the context of being held. They protest, they resist being settled, or the dis, that's the resistant attachment. And finally, um, Children who may be securely or insecurely attached might also show fear in the presence of the caregiver for the reasons I mentioned, to do with loss, trauma experiences in the parent's mind that are still very unsettling and disturbing. Yes. So 
with based on your years of having these meetings with him, did you um, get a sense of some things he was most proud of or happy about with his theories and maybe disappointments or um, continual misunderstandings that frustrated him? Uh, I had um, the occasion with uh, Miriam Steele of inviting John Bowlby to uh, the Anna Freud Center in 1988 to give a talk. Things had changed. Uh, there was a director of the center at the time, an American named George Moran, who um, welcomed John Bowlby giving a talk. And he spoke about his, his ideas. I um, have two associations to that 1988 encounter with John Bowlby. One is after the talk, we sat in the cafeteria, John Bowlby, me and Miriam, and he spoke out in a loud voice. He wanted others to hear. And he remarked, you know, in 50 years as a practicing psychoanalyst, I never had any use for the idea of an Oedipus complex. and during his talk, after it, I asked him, I said, you know, um, Dr. Bowlby, uh, you're familiar with the work that I've been doing with Miriam Steele, interviewing pregnant women and their partners. One um, man that I interviewed talked about being at university and the university giving you an honorary degree, and he protested the award of this honorary degree to you because they were closing down the nursery on campus. They were no longer providing childcare for the small young children of uh, faculty and students. And John Bowlby replied that he regrets um, the fact that some of those nurseries have, have closed for economic reasons. But at the same time, he would say, to parents of young children, if you want a job done well, do it yourself. Okay. So he had a, a, quite a kind of stern, demanding um, job. He wanted to make parents aware of their responsibilities. At the same time, he frequently said, in conclusion, at the conclusion of talks or things he wrote, uh, a society that values its children must cherish their parents. Mm. So there's no sense here that we're trying to blame parents or highlight parents who have loss or trauma difficulties. The point is to signal this important issue so parents can get the help that they deserve in order to help their children. And now there are many resources like this podcast and web um, videos and where where people can can learn about um, attachment uh, and its relevance across the world to to the human and other species. It's true. It's true. So um, I guess uh, I'd like to conclude with a couple final questions. One, I just absolutely can't resist asking, what did he think of the adult attachment interview? (laughs) 
Yeah, he lived um, long enough to become familiar with that contribution of uh, Professor Mary Main at Berkeley, the Adult Attachment Interview, or AAI. Uh, in a um, 2008 book uh, that, that I brought, brought out, an edited book called Clinical Applications of the AAI, in the preface, uh, we quote from uh, a 1949 paper of John Bowlby entitled Reducing uh, Tension and Conflict Within the Family. And in it, he says that children can be greatly helped by mental health professionals who interview the key caregiver, typically mother, about her history. Because if you're familiar with the history of the parent, you can understand the parent better and thereby help the child and the parent to be happier with one another. So he saw, as we did, the adult attachment interview as a formalization of that important task of inquiring about probable childhood experiences of adults, as well as their current state of mind regarding attachment. And we ask along the way questions about loss and trauma so that we can identify in the speech of adults those signs of unresolved loss or unresolved trauma, specifically lapses in the monitoring of speech where somebody becomes absorbed and talks too much about a difficult experience in a somewhat disorganized way that conveys a sense of guilt and lapses in the monitoring of reason, referring to a dead person as if they have living animate characteristics, or referring to an abusive figure as someone who wasn't really responsible or didn't really abuse me. It did me good. It taught me a lesson. No. Whatever we know about resolving loss or abuse, it involves acknowledging vis-a-vis -vis loss, the finality, the permanence of that situation. It's mystery, it's the human condition. Um, and we can, of course, believe that there may be a heaven, there may be another world where we will be reunited with our dead loved ones, but not in this world. So the expression of religious or spiritual or metaphysical beliefs is understandable. That doesn't count as evidence of unresolved loss. That might be a way out. That might be a strategy. Mm -hmm. for coping with, with loss. And with vis-a-vis -vis abuse, what's so important is for the adult who is, ex has experienced childhood abuse, physical or sexual abuse, that they can acknowledge it and that they can acknowledge responsibility belongs in the hands, on the shoulders of the abuser. Mm -hmm. they, they are not to blame. Yeah. The child is not to blame for the abuse they suffer. And there's a freedom in that discovery. So um, these are the, some of the messages I think that John Bowlby would want to convey. In his conversations with myself and um, Dr. Miriam Steele, he said, I hope you're telling parents of infants that they should be allowed to suck, that they should be given pacifiers. There's many parents who say it's going to disfigure the dental development of the child. No, one infants in the first year of life have a intense need to 
to suck. It's evolutionarily determined. Mm -hmm. And he said as well that there's nothing so helpful for parents as getting together with other parents, sharing stories in a parent group. And that influenced um, Miriam and myself and our colleague Ann Murphy to develop a group multifamily intervention where parents are together with other parents. You know, so some some of the people listening to this will be family therapists or group therapists. Bowie was all in favor of that. And uh, his final book, of course, was a biography of uh, Charles Darwin where he claimed that Charles Darwin suffered loss, lost a child to pneumonia or something like an eight-year-old and um, was, was badly struck, badly hurt by this experience. And John Bowlby's um, observation is that Darwin would have been more productive mm-hmm. if he had not suffered this painful, unsettling loss. And some would say that maybe Bowlby would be more productive if uh, Minnie had not left him when he was four years old. <laughs> but uh, yeah, one thing about Bowlby uh, that is uh, inspiring is that the trilogy, three books that comprise attachment theory. Yes. Attachment, published in 1969. Separation published in 1973, and Loss, published in 1980. All of these were written after he retired from his day job at the Tavistock Clinic. Is that your dog? (laughs) It's actually an annoying reminder. I'm sorry. Uh, Yes, we have to come to a close soon. But um, keep in mind, um, Bowlby retired in uh, 1967 from the Tavistock Clinic, and the, all the, the trilogy came later, and two very special, easily accessible books, we should mention. 1979, he published a collection of lectures called The Making and Breaking of Affectional Bonds, very accessible. These are books you can pick up for very affordably. Mm-hmm. And the second one is a 1988 book, entitled Clinical Applications of Attachment as Secure Base. The mm-hmm. notion, and we can finish with this perhaps, yeah. the secure base is a beautiful one. Uh, children need a base to which they can return when they're distressed and from which they can explore when they feel settled and confident. And uh, so we see that securely attached people are very productive. You must be securely attached to be so productive in coordinating <laughs> these podcasts. Uh, I have no doubt, Karen. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. It's just been a, a beautiful um, conversation and interview about Bowlby and um, reflecting on his life and his contributions. So thank you again so much for your time. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 